Dispatching from Block Island, this is Allison Morfold, the Director of the Wellness and Risk Reduction Program at the Block Island Medical Center, and Kristen Bauman, Director of the Island Free Library. This is Wake Up Well, a community conversation around wellness in the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Thanks for joining us. Hopefully when we talk about who brings on the next perspective is when my career is done. But we look forward to like a, a, a long relationship here and it's been a real honor to be here so far and it's, been, it's really been a pleasure. So we're really happy to have on our show today, Dr. Workup, who is the new medical director of the Block Island Medical Center. So welcome. Thank you. I guess our first question I want to ask, which is a question we've been asking most people who uh, talk to us, is why are you on Block Island? We usually ask why do you live here, but I guess it might be more informative for people to know why you moved here. Oh, that's a great question. So I'm from Rhode Island. My wife is from Rhode Island. And we grew up in Warwick uh, over by the airport. And I have a brother and my sister and my extended family is all here. We both went away for college and training to Maine, then Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and then I came back actually as a National Health Service Corps uh, scholar to work at the Health Center of South County, which is in Wakefield, which is now Thundermist of Wakefield, and then did eight additional years with the Narragansett Indian Tribe. And when the Obamacare or the PPACA started to come about, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill started to think about developing a new and unique office to look at alternative payment models. And because I did a lot of population health at the Indian Health Service because they only get about 60 cents on the dollar. So out of necessity, we needed to be efficient. I was being reached out to by a colleague that was trying to formulate what that program would look like. And then eventually they said, why don't you come down and interview for the job? And I was fortunate enough to be tapped as the medical director for a, a new office called Carolina Advanced Health. Then it was a classic story of I'll go down for four years and nine years later I was still there, but always wanting to come back to New England. I think it made me appreciate more than ever, believe it or not, this sounds odd, but what the ocean makes you feel like and, the, and what New England looks like as comparatively to North Carolina, the people, your family. And so my wife and I were really interested getting back now that our kids were getting older and we started looking at some opportunities really in healthcare administration in Southern Massachusetts and some other areas, Maine. And then I saw the Black Island Health Center opportunity, which I had been exposed to 15 years ago. And for the listeners that remember Dr. Paul Mann, uh, I actually gave it to him to look at because I had been uh, shown it and he took and ran with it. So it was somewhat karma that it kind of came back around on my radar screen and Block Island is quintessential New England coastal community in the sense of what it looks like and the, the flavor of the, uh, of the environment. So we were absolutely thrilled to uh, take the opportunity, talk with Dr. Clark, and then eventually, you know, with the nod from everyone to say, come join us. Nice. Nice. I'm wondering, what are your impressions so far? My impressions are much like I felt when I was at the Indian Health Service, which is, this is a real diamond in the rough. I think the fragmented healthcare system nationally is so 
difficult to traverse to find a place that you can have a culturally competent, intimate relationship with people and help advocate for them about where to go, what tests you need, who else do we need to speak with? It's really lost in a lot of the healthcare environments and it's really lost the true family medicine or primary care aspect. But this place has that. We have a close bond with the around community members and we do have to deal with the transient, urgent and emerging care issues that happen on the island. But at the core, we're a primary care ambulatory service facility that meets the needs from children to geriatrics. And so I think we have it all and we have dedicated people. The community obviously wanted this health center to exist. A lot of people were involved in making it happen. So there's just a lot of investment, uh, I think both emotionally and financially into the health center. And I think that gives you a great recipe for success. Mm -hmm. Dr. Warcup, how long have you been here? This is the beginning of my fourth week total. Well, you, you understand us already. So kudos to you. you. I, 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 um, well, first I'd like to welcome you. Um, and thank you for coming on. And I, I, you know, you just gave us a lot to talk about already. That was a lot of meaty statements there. Um, we do want to know what the flavor of Block Island is and what it smells like. And we, do hear this reoccurring theme um, with the people we interview about, you know, connection and family and New England, and we're always we're always curious. We Allison asks that question every week because we're curious what that language is. And you you had language about that. You smell it. You 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 knew what it was going to smell like here. Something very unique about a craggy coastline that. This is a statement that anybody who's listening that's from New England would understand. When you're in North Carolina and you say to somebody, it smells like snow, they don't know what that means. Yeah. So there's a hard description or it's hard to describe something that you just feel subjectively or emotionally and you need somebody to, to feel it and understand it. And I think that has been the experience that my wife and I have had, which is we have experiences, moments, relationships with our family and friends in New England <clears throat> that is unique. And we wanted to get back to it. And I don't know if it's just that as we get older, this is my 20th year in medicine. I don't know if it's just that we're getting older and understanding and appreciating more of our roots uh, as we've gotten older, but we're really thrilled to be back. That's great. We're thrilled to have you because my follow-up to that is I think you also really it sounded like you, you're a good fit for the medical center. I have to tell you that, you know, one of my proudest moments was I was on the hiring committee for Dr. Clark, and I thought he was a great fit and a great hire, and I would be equally proud to have been on the committee that hired you. Um, I'm very happy to meet you and hear already what you have to say about our medical center and the relationship to the community and wh what your place is here. So, so really and, and truly welcome. Thank you. So I have to ask, like, so you're gearing up to come here, which has to be a process on its own. And then the coronavirus hits. What are you thinking? Like, in, you know that it hits big time in March, right? You know you're going to move. You're supposed to be here 
what was it, like May 11th or something like that. So like, what's going through your mind when that happens? That's a great statement. So you're right. Everything in medicine just stopped. You know, at UNC, everything stopped. Core business stopped. We were in full-on coronavirus uh, evaluation, preparation. And one of my jobs was to work on nursing home placements and actually trying to secure building space for UNC to transport inpatients to a facility so we can keep the throughput happening in the hospital. But I think it made me realize more emphatically that when you have systems and you have dedicated people and there's a community spirit about it, you can get a lot accomplished. And it was difficult to get things accomplished in a large system like UNC. And it really exposed the siloed nature of how things are in healthcare. And likely in any large corporation is similar. But I was, and I think a lot of physicians as well, it doesn't really trouble us. Like I'm not troubled by the coronavirus. I think we look at it or we're trained to look at it as what is it? What do we do about it? How do we prevent what we can prevent? How do we treat what we need to treat? And if you stay in that mode, then you don't look at it in this enormity. You look at it into how do I get through this period of time? And as things change and as data changes and as everyone's comfort becomes different, then we reevaluate. So I wouldn't say that it was a, oh my gosh moment, but it was, okay, I was actually appreciative of the experience I had in the preceding five weeks at UNC. So when I came, I knew and I was very much involved in how to organize in the next steps. I think if I was in a, a small practice somewhere where you're just relying on the departments of health or any other organization, it wouldn't have had the same experience for me. But when I came here, I said, Okay, let's get started. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the maybe the stakeholders or the or pieces of the puzzle changed here, but the idea of having to coordinate with all these different factors is not something unfamiliar to you. Right. And what was exciting is that you could directly talk with the people that are decision makers. We can talk with the town council, we can talk with the EMS personnel, we can talk with the police chief, we can talk with the ferry systems. And that's where you can get a lot done in a short period of time versus large amorphous committees that have trouble making any particular action plans in any area that we were experiencing in other corporate settings. I like that idea of talking with real people who are really on the ground doing the actual work. That is, I think that is unique to small communities and, and unique to how things work around here. And I think to expand on that, one of the experiences we had this week when we were talking with the Department of Health and the state is you have to sometimes get real clarification of what are our expectations of state entities, what are the expectations of ourselves, and then with the, just the sober realization that there are certain things that we will have to do for ourselves on the island and that we prepare for it in a way that's honest and what is in the best interest of patients and making sure that we can execute on it. I, I agree with that. I, I feel that in my work as part of a public library and a public library consortium that's statewide, you know, I'm not gonna do what Warwick and, I'm not gonna have the capability to do what Warwick and Providence does. There's other small libraries in our state that are small. They don't have the space to open up. They don't have that 300 
square foot distance or the staff to monitor the bathroom and the door and people's um, behavior in the building. But yet I think there's something transferable there that just because we're small, I almost think that we should be the role model. I'm always thinking that what we're doing is we should, they should transfer. They should do what we're doing. I think that the, the, the small boots on the ground connected to the community um, has a lot to offer. And yet I feel like we get dictated to. I think that's true in a lot of sense. I guess the word that comes to my mind with us is nimble. We have to be nimble, respond to our community's needs, where large engines that are driven by politics and procedures that do not allow them to be nimble give you that steadfastness. But it, in these type of scenarios, it gives us, I think, greater clarity that what I need from the state is resources, financially, materialistically, we need uh, access to certain entities at the state level politically, but then we'll execute it in the best way that we know how in our community. And I've learned this over many years and I think it's always holding true. We are the best to determine what we need and what we need is guidance and materialistic and both maybe informational support, financial support to execute on what we need. When you have these larger systems, they have to make generalized statements, generalized procedural plans, but then everything is local. And it's in a statement that I learned when I was very early in medicine, and I think the lay community knows it as well. They say all politics is local, all healthcare is local. It's really having that relationship with your t medical team, your healthcare team. And I think what you have here is, to have a, an organization where we have providers, nurses that are dedicated, front team members that are members of the community, ancillary providers like dentistry and chiropractic and acupuncture and physical therapy, I would like all the listeners to realize that's not everywhere. That is not the experience that the average primary care practice can deliver for a patient. So the fact that we can deliver it is tremendous. Yeah, I, 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 I echo that. Um, I think it is a tremendous center up there. And I think most people are very proud of that and are looking forward to its continued uh, success. And I, I do think, I, I love that, that it's local. Um, again, that resonates with me. And this, this sense of, yeah, what, what do we need from the larger organizations? But one of the things we need is some autonomy, right? Like we, like you're saying, we we know what how we're going to use that, how it's going to be best, and I think that's especially true as reopening of Rhode Island starts to happen this next week. Um, what is really going to work for Block Island, and what's going to work for our community? Yeah, something that I've really appreciated about being able to talk to you during this time is that there's this sort of steady presence regarding how you're approaching this problem. As a citizen and as a lot of people, at, at talking to a lot of people who live here, I feel we are sort of vacillating between these two places of wanting to shut the whole place down and uh, the fear that if we, if we do that, what will happen economically. 
And what I see you doing is, is very sensitively trying to sort of straddle the gap of like, okay, where's the middle ground? How can we do some things or what we can do safely um, without overreacting, but in a way that lets us continue to live our lives? Maybe it doesn't look exactly like it looked last summer, but how can we live our lives and keep, keep us and our, and our loved ones safe? I agree. And I think for me, how I, I view that is there are always public, economical, political pressures that have to be considered. But that, as you've heard me say, our swim lane is how do we provide the best healthcare education and delivery of that healthcare for our, for our members? And with that, often allows us to say we have to be very grounded in a pragmatism of that isolation versus full opening those are the ends of the spectrum and the and the middle ground is likely where it's always going to live so therefore and i think in medicine you realize that in a virus situation like we're dealing with it is inevitable it is inevitable that it'll be here so we at the health center need to plan for what is inevitable and not necessarily feel like if we just do certain things it'll never be here and and so some of those we completely leave to our uh, our, our our elected officials to make determinations, take the best evidence the best we can. And I think for us, what really was helpful this week is a clear relationship with the DOH and the governor's office that if and when we have our next coronavirus case, we do X, you do Y. And, my, and our expectation is that the DOH does their job with contact tracing, and our job is to keep our citizens safe. So it's back to that autonomy piece where the autonomy to some degree is because of our geography. And the beauty of that is that it does allow us almost intuitively to know that we are to make our own decisions. And that was really, I think, echoed by the Department of Health. And we have a number, and I, I wanna say, and I, I mentioned this earlier to a group of individuals, we are on their radar. They know it, we are communicating well, town council is communicating well with them. I've been very impressed about our communication directly with the governor's office and the DOH, and, and they've stepped up and, and provided some material support for us. Yeah, that's so good to hear. I mean, I think oftentimes people on Block Island feel forgotten uh, at the state level. So it's good to know that you feel confident that you can communicate with them. Yeah, I think it's always unfortunate that it takes events like these to rebuild some of those relationships and to have steady communication, I think, in a uh, when we're not dealing with a pandemic situation, it, it may be more scattered. And, and I think that what the health center is so well situated for, I think under Dr. Clark's leadership, who, who brought, brought a very ER-driven mindset, is that it took the health center into a certain area that allowed us to be better equipped at certain urgent care and ER-related events. And then hopefully with my kind of longitudinal ambulatory care viewpoint and training and an administrative uh, experience that we can say, let's make it fully rounded out, let's really optimize policies and procedures, really start humming in a very efficient way so we can get to the next step. What do we need to do to get to the next step? And, and, and I think we can do that. Mm -hmm. And so if I, if I could maybe stitch a couple things together here. Um, you said that, you know, when you were in, were you in North Carolina or South Carolina? North Carolina. North Carolina. Um, and uh, the pandemic happened. Everything stopped, right? You said everything stopped. And um, 
I, you know, we all know that we all feel that right. Everything sort of stopped. And that is a curious point that we're at. How do we go from everything being stopped to moving ahead? And yet I think we would agree. And I think most people would agree with us that we're, we're not moving to what we once knew, right? It's going to be something different. Is that, is, is that true? Like we're, we're not, we're not, when things stopped, we're not going back to how it was. We're going to something different, or at least for the next phase or a few phases, or I don't know what kind of time frame we want to put on that. But this sense of, you know, moving the public forward with us in a safe manner that you said politically and economic and public factors, um, for me, it's about like, what's my core mission here? And I think that's what you just said. What's the core mission of the medical center? What's the core mission of um, what we do for our community? And how are we going to do that now? And that has been a hard question. That has been a moving target. Yeah, I think that sounds right. I think you're very accurate in that. And Allison can reflect on this too. One of the first things I did in the, my first week was, let's get the doors open, right? Let's, let's, let's stop being in the medical side reactionary. Let's get the doors open. Let's get back to core business. There are ways to protect ourselves and protect our community members. But our job, our job in the healthcare field is to give accurate understanding of what's happening and for us to create a sense of calm because what we realize on the national scene, we have people with diabetes that aren't getting their care and emphysema that's not getting their care because they're, they're delaying everything and that has its costs as well. So as much as the tragic coronavirus deaths, we're not talking a lot on the national scene about the suicide rates and the domestic abuse situations and the alcohol and drug abuse situations all because of quarantining, financial stresses, health stressors, and we see it. And I know that Dr. Clark had mentioned it a few times in the town councils that we're starting to see it, certainly in some of the medical cases that we see in the office. But I think our job is to, when it's appropriate, get back to our mission and give a sense, a real sense to patients that we things are okay. You know, things are okay. There are ways for us to live through this and we will have a, a heightened awareness of this type of stuff going forward. But I'm almost excited to see what post-COVID looks like. I think the idea of masks and hygiene and social distancing will take on a whole new meaning to people when it comes to our flu seasons going forward. And we might see less flu deaths. You know, we see up to 52,000 flu deaths per year and maybe that'll be dramatically cut in half. Uh, it'll be exciting to see what it's like in the post-COVID world. And we're getting, we're getting there. And I think in the phases that you mentioned earlier, it's just smartly looking at it in a different way, being practical where we can, but with a clear understanding that we will see surges, like in anything else. When you open up, you are gonna see surges, and that's why the governor's office is not releasing the nursing homes from the stricter standards, because right now that's where we're seeing pockets of outbreaks. Yeah, I, I, I have been um, thinking about that these past few months, like nobody got a stomach bug, nobody got lice, nobody, um, you know, those, those things that in a small community, 
you know, we all know what's happening or, or in the library. I, I don't know if everybody does, but in the library, we see, you know, a wide range of um, ages. And so we know what the kids have and we know what's going on at school. And we know, you know, and of course we had none of that this winter. And hopefully we come out with a greater sense of caring for each other. You know, this is certainly, ex I think, accentuated the idea that the 22 year old can show a lot of respect to the 92 year old by making sure that they're responsible of exposure. And hopefully we can continue that type of attitude towards each other. One thing that we, we struggle with here sometimes as a year round population, we know we need and we love our tourists and the people who are here for shoulder season. And this virus has sort of given us a sense of fear around people coming here, whether we, we've known them for years or not. If they've been anywhere else for a while there, and maybe there still is a little bit of this, there was a sense that we just, we didn't really want them to come here at all. Um, so now we're, we're on sort of the doorstep of opening things up a little bit. And you've done a lot of work this past week in talking to the town council about work plans for businesses. So give us a little bit of an overview of just, you know, we've had, we've been able to listen to you during town council meetings, but give us a little, just a little bit of an overview of kind of what your philosophy is around that and what is the, what are the goals that you're trying to accomplish? Sure. Uh, first, I think the, the opening of Rhode Island guidelines that were put out by the governor's office, they're very well grounded, CDC based. And I think as that as a core is excellent. What's unique to us is we have seasonal workers coming, we have people in close quarters. And so what I wanted to make sure that we added and augmented off of the governor's plan is how do we isolate individuals that may be COVID positive or a person under investigation when they're here under the umbrella of an employer? So if you have someone that's living in a, in a facility that's got two or three other individuals in the same room, what do we do quickly and effectively to make sure that that individual gets isolated so they don't infect others and our, really our clear path to the DOH for contact tracing? And it gets back to us being the ones on the ground. We will have to be the ones that mitigate processes at first so that way we can then get resources from the outside. So my philosophy is that I am planning for that it is going to happen and that we prepare. And so we're not panicked. We have a sense of calm. We've trained this. We've talked about this. We've, we've really role played it. And then let's work our process. And then to try to keep our community safe. So isolation planning is a big one for us. And my philosophy, I think, has always been steeped in pragmatism. We hope for the best, but we have to plan for the worst is something that we often do in medicine. And I think we are planning and role playing and we're ready for what comes at us and knowing that we're never alone. We have resources on the mainland that we can get execution on, but we need to be able to hold down the fort until that happens. Mm -hmm. and, and, and how does that apply to households? You know, when we live, you know, we, we live in households with people that are also going to work or to jobs or to food shop or out to eat. And, you know, what happens when someone in your household gets sick? Do we also, do we all quarantine? Do we, I, I don't, I'm not quite clear on the difference between someone living in um, a communal housing situation for an employer and someone living in uh, a resident household. 
Sure. Yeah, that's a great perspective. And, and you're right, it isn't different in a lot of ways. So if we were to take, say, an example of a family of four and one of the individuals contracts COVID due to contact tracing and naturally we would test the rest of the family. If the rest of the family was negative, then that one individual in that family would be asked to, to sequester into a room or a part of the house if that's possible. And they would uh, hopefully have access to a bathroom or we could put in some policies and procedures with them to say, let this person freely move around in the areas that they need to for activities of daily living, but you need to stay away from them. And if you could, if, there's, if they have a cottage they can be in by themselves, great, but that's not often practical. But generally, it's just they need to be in a room if they have a room with a bathroom on their own and they don't have any other significant medical conditions, they can convalesce at home very effectively and the family can stay safe. If we find that the other family members also have COVID positivity, then they can congregate together in their COVID positivity. It's, it, they're all have it. They're not going to get it from each other any differently. We just have to make sure that those individuals in the household don't have medical problems that could cause them to rapidly deteriorate. So often the plans that I've talked about is we need to understand the social situation. So if we're thinking about an employee or a transient person to the island, do you have a safe place to go back to? If you don't, we need to think about getting you back to where you are from so that way you can convalesce at home and not necessarily be put in a position where you don't have safe housing and you're going to likely infect others because you have to get out and do certain things. If you have a stable housing a relationship on the island and you don't have any major medical problems and you're doing well, there's probably no reason why you can't convalesce on the island. I think the island's really pulled together where you can get food delivered for you, family and friends can help you deliver. But I wanna make sure that everyone understands that COVID doesn't equal hospitalization and COVID doesn't equal death. COVID is, again, it has, we have a 10% positive rate in the, in the, in the um, in the state of Rhode Island. It's not dissimilar in the national market, but that also means that 90%, really 92% of those people that are positive are completely asymptomatic. So we did, we we're really talking about a small percentage. Although if you have underlying medical conditions like you're in cancer treatment, you're a diabetic, you're, you're kind of elderly or infirmed, you're at greater risk. So we need to continue to isolate and protect our vulnerable, but realize that many young, healthy individuals are going to have it asymptomatically and they can live their life after their quarantine period. I appreciate your clarity on that. And, um, you know, we, I might have a few other questions sort of basic like that. And I have to say, um, you know, it's because we haven't had to really understand this yet. We have not had cases and and maybe that's true for everywhere that was shelter in place and now no longer isn't that this under you know all we understood was shelter in place and what that created i think is that sense of fear of people coming and leaving your home and so this idea that we can you know work through this um is very helpful thank you so yeah, so yeah, again, you know, coming from this place of like, we haven't had to deal with this yet, right? We haven't had to say, my coworker is sick, my son is sick. We, we just haven't had that yet. So yeah, we do have, I have questions about that. We have questions about that, you know? So I guess my next question would be, 
you say you would test the family members or test the coworkers. And what is, and again, forgive me if this is basic, but we haven't been here before. Is that test, can you test the first day? Do you have to test every day for two weeks? Do we have to quarantine for two weeks? What does that testing look like? Sure. So how that testing would, would work is, obviously if there's an individual that has a COVID positive test, and we know that they're in exposure to, let's say a family in this example, that family had been exposed over time. So it's very reasonable to test those family members in the same moment. We have the ability to test same day as well as uh, if we needed to do swab technology to send off to the Department of Health. And if, but if they're negative and we know they've been in close contact, at the moment we can say, great, they, they are negative. Right now, the only people getting serial testing are nursing home patients. Obviously, there's an inherent vulnerability to those individuals in nursing homes where they're getting tested almost, I think each week they're getting tested. But in the case that we're talking about would be that then you would immediately try to isolate the individual that was positive, the negative tests for the rest of the family, then you do wellness checks. How are you doing? Our goal would be to touch base with them every day by phone. Do you have a temperature? Are you feeling well? And as long as they can get through that 10 to 14 day period without any symptomatology, then that family would say be in the free and clear. And, and during that time, go to work and leave the home? I would not, a lot, no, that wouldn't be the case. The COVID negative individuals would likely need to quarantine because our concern is there's not a 100% positive rate on these tests. So there's about an 85% sensitivity to these tests. So we would likely say, at least in the short term, we need to see if you develop any symptoms and most people will develop it in that two to five day period. So it gives us some latitude, but I think initially, and this is where coordination with the DOH would come into play very, very timely is, we have a COVID person, we reach out to the DOH, it's their responsibility for contact tracing and guidance for us, but based on the individual, their wellness, what kind of job they perform, et cetera, would play a role in whether or not they could go back to work in the short term. Got it. And so that's a lot, that's a lot, uh, potentially a lot of work for the medical center coming up and you're feeling um, prepared and staffed for that? Yes, we, and I think we all are feeling that way. Uh, other than this is new, this is new for all of us. Yeah. I think where what we continue to try to reinforce is it's our job to be the healthcare professionals on the ground and we have a role in public health but it's Department of Health's responsibility for contact tracing and guidance. And they have a 92% success rate in contact within 24 to 48 hours. So there's a lot of support there for us. So I, I would, it would be not accurate to think that we are really isolated in an event like that. We have a lot of people that we can rely on and guidance from a lot of different entities. So yes, we would be the ones likely executing, but we also have EMS personnel that's been trained by the National Guard on how to do testing. We have other healthcare professionals that live on the island that we could rely on, and we've been trying to collate a listserv with those individuals recently. So the overall answer is yes, I think we feel confident that we, we have what we need to continue to help. Yeah, you know, academically, like this has been, 
an exciting time to be able to operationalize all these different situations. Like for people, you know, like Kira, who's in a public health degree, me and my degree program, to be able to think through all these different scenarios, try to, uh, to match our needs with resources, and then um, there's this overwhelming feeling that what you're doing is really preparing for your community. It's a really, I mean, of course, there's, there's, there's some fear, it's a little bit scary, and there's a lot going on, but overall, I mean, I think the medical center is really prepared to rise to this occasion. And like Dr. Workup's been saying, come out on the other side, a stronger and maybe a little bit more organized institution because this COVID kind of kicks your butt and gets you, it gets you into shape in terms of, you know, making sure that you got all your ducks in a row. Yeah. Yeah. I think you bring up something that is, so I have a, a master's in health administration and a lot of my work is I think operationalizing and executing on certain processes. And I think this crisis illustrates that one of the, nice things about a small office is that there's a lot of institutional knowledge within people's heads. We need to get that knowledge and put it on paper because that's really what the community needs because it's got to be bigger than any one of us. It's got to be able to be seamless where if we were to say we got say per diem help or, or we needed a succession plan very quickly, it would become how do we do certain things? And right now it's it's within the minds of people that are here and it's going to be my job over the next year to really get those things put on paper because then you can refine it and then you can really understand it and then you can train on it. So that way that's how people really become a well oiled machine. And, and often if you ever unfortunately had a heart attack or a stroke and you end up in an ER, there's a real quick succession of what happens. That's not by accident. They write it, write it down, they train on it, everybody knows their roles and there's clarity. And then that clarity reflects to the patient of confidence that the team knows what they're doing. And there's a lot less cross chatter of trying to figure out where things are. So there's a lot of value that comes out of a challenge like this. And you are right, we're all living a pandemic. We had H1N1 in 2009 and 2010 for those of us that were in healthcare. So these moments you'll be able to reflect on and say, yeah, I lived it. I remember what it felt like. I remember what we did. And the value in that for us is if and when it ever happens again, we should just dust off the playbook, right? We shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel. We should just say, here's what we did when we did it. This is how we instituted social distancing. This is how we managed the town beach. This is how we managed the bathrooms. This is how we managed the employers. And not 15 years from now trying to figure it out again. And that's where you have to do that knowledge management. Yeah. And I love, you know, Chris, to Kristen's point, and she was talking about being a role model, you know, as a community. And to your point about talking about us thinking about our health center as a diamond in the rough, this is a moment where we can lead the way for other communities that look a little bit like us. Mm -hmm. We can show, and maybe even bigger communities, this is what happens when you work closely with folks who are on the ground and you kind of like cut through the bureaucracy to make things happen and you operationalize it mm -hmm. and you approach things in a really pragmatic way. And I'm excited to see what the outcome is and um, you know, what Block Island learns from it. 
Yeah, I would agree. And I, I, I guess I would just ask, you know, are, are we doing it right? Like for me, I had this moment this week of, it's not like the virus has changed at all. We're just changing how we're gonna live, right? Like it's still out there, it's still around. It's still um, a, a threat. Is that, I don't wanna, again, you know, I understand this sense of to be calm, but you know, I think it's still somewhat of a threat for people. Um, but yet we're coming out of our homes and we're opening our businesses. And so um, this is a curious point for me. What is, what is our goal there? What, why, what has changed? What's, what is propelling us forward? I, I think it's economic drive. And I would say also our, our knowledge. And I think that it's very practical for anybody throughout the United States, when we first started getting the data, it was very jarring. It was, okay, we need a moment to figure out what was happening. Certainly we were getting less than accurate data out of the Far East. And I think as we started to consume it in the way our healthcare engine works and our epidemiologic engines work here in the United States, we started to realize, okay, we're getting our hands around this. And we're putting out information that is starting to help us understand how we can react. But on the same side, I think the constancy of the information created a sense of frenetic pace and chaos because I think a lot of information was coming out and if there's a small difference every day, people feel like, quote unquote, there's confusion because it seems to be different every day. And it's because it was. It was the idea to try to over-communicate and over-communicate, but the downside to that is, how do I consume what's different today compared to yesterday? So in the absence of that, why don't I just shelter in place? And we need to understand more about, or we needed to understand more about how the virus acted, how it was contracted, and we've had that learning curve. So I think it was very appropriate for everyone to do what we did at the very beginning, but now we needed to live in a new world and just to say that the virus is out there, we are not likely, we don't have walls that can stop the virus. And it's inevitable that people are either gonna fly here, pleasure craft here, come by ferry, and we have to just understand how to protect ourselves uh, going forward. And I, I mentioned something earlier, we've lived through H1N1, and that was a pandemic. You don't hear anybody even talk about H1N1 anymore because we lived it, we understood it, we managed it, we came up with things to, to, man, to manage it and mitigate it going forward. And then it comes our new normal. And now H1N1 was very much in part of flu shots for years afterwards to try to get that community immunity up or herd immunity as it's referred to. And we're getting fairly close to having herd immunity for the United States when it comes to coronavirus. We have about 25% in a recent paper. We need to get to 50, 55%. So we're halfway there to a community immunity base that we can then be more free about it. But you're right, it is real. And I'm not trying to minimize it. It is a real fear factor for many people that have disease processes, but I don't think it needs to consume us. Yeah, that's very helpful. This, this sense that um, we, we did the right thing, we needed that time to understand it, we needed that time to get um, our plans in place, and, and now we need to move forward. I, I think that that is very helpful. And so your 
confident in your profession that mask wearing and social distancing is effective and what we need to be doing? It is, and I am confident that. I think what we'll hopefully see more of in the, in the future is when the N95s can be in more abundance, then we'll have even a safer process than the surgical masks. And so I think we can keep our healthcare providers more safe, even though I think they're already safe the way we do it with gloves and, and goggles and masks as we have. I think probably our next frontier is how do we enforce this all? How do we, how do we get either compliance from a community by messaging, social education, or enforcement in other mains to make sure that we can all live our lives, but with respect to each other to, to, to adhere to what we need to do to keep everyone safe? It's a, it's a cliche, but we are all in this together. And these things, this virus is not discriminatory. It is for old, young, diseased, well, and it's, um, it's something that I think everybody needs to understand, but there's a maturity process over time that we all need to understand that it is what we can do for each other, the mask, the hand hygiene. And again, it'll be part of that post-COVID world. It'll be very interesting to see what we adopt, and it'll be a great sociology project to see if do we adopt it for two years, and then it kind of drifts away as we get complacent as, as human behavior can be. But it'll be an interesting time. Yeah, and I would throw into your list there um, role modeling. I know for myself, I, I walk to work and um, I try to, and I feel safe when I'm on the street. I know exercising, you don't, you're not, I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, exercising, you wouldn't necessarily need to wear a mask, you know, and so I'm always debating my walk to work. And in winter, I didn't debate it nearly as much, right? There wasn't anybody on the street. Nobody was looking at me. Nobody was, I was in, I just walked to work. But now I wear my mask to work. So, and I do that to role model that we wear masks in this community. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that's part of our kind of phase understanding or a phase comfort level that if I'm walking on Crescent Beach without a mask and the next person is 35 feet away, we're good, right? And I understand that that's difficult from a policy decision-making of either close the beach, open the beach, everyone wear a mask. But you're right, role modeling is very important. But then I think as we get more refined in understanding of what we can do, when we can do it, and using that personal responsibility with each other. So if you're walking on a street and you're completely alone, you know, you're right academically you don't need to use a mask but if you feel like it's a role modeling opportunity then you're definitely right to do so and and so now i have like a, like a very targeted question as as i start to approach phase 2 in the library world what's happening with um the disease on paper and and on surfaces it see that information seems to have changed very recently it has, and, and, you're, and you're, you're right to think about that as a risk because we appreciate more now that it's in droplet form. Now, granted, so inanimate objects like a table or paper are called fomites in, in the medical world. So you could cough on a, and leave particles on a table or whatnot. So our cleaning procedures are important. Glove wearing is important. Uh, and all of that is, uh, that's where the hand hygiene comes in. And 
I heard this statement once before, and I think it's very accurate. We probably don't wash our hands as much now as we did a month ago. And that's where that comes with that human behavior where since it didn't really affect me and we're going to slide away. But in these phased approaches, when we have to start opening, there has to be a resurgence of that. And I think in your situation at the library specifically is you have people touching books, you have people touching tables, you have children in there and children are children. And you have to kind of be one step ahead of them. So it may be something for a library to say, you need to tell the librarian what books you want and we go get the books. You know, it's a, it's a lot of work on the individuals, but uh, I don't want everybody in the stacks. I don't want everybody touching 22 books and, and it's hard. And that's why how individuals manage it is local. Like what works for your library isn't gonna work for the Providence Library or the Wawak Library because maybe they got 15 librarians and we have one. So, but you're right. It's gonna be an increased diligence in cleaning and it fortunately isn't something special about how we clean. It's just cleaning it with our disinfectants readily, appropriately, and making sure that we can try to mitigate it. And you know, the masks will help people that are sneezing and coughing from allergens and not create a sense of panic. But this is where gloves will probably be a big part of the library. Gloves, wearing gloves, touching the books with gloves, taking care of things with gloves on, so that way you can use hand hygiene alcohol-based hand sanitizers and then change out your gloves. Yeah, thank you for that. Th those specifics are great for my staff and I as we move forward. And, and you're correct, we are, that is called um, closed stack librarianship. That is how it used to be historically. I think the Boston Public Library, or one of the Boston Public Libraries is still closed stacks. And that's the opposite of browsing, which is what we pride ourselves on here, being a browsing library. But we won't be that this summer. We will be, what would you like? We'll go get it for you. We'll check it out for you. We're putting it in a brown bag and now you can be on your way. And, that, and again, so for me, that goes back to what's my core mission? How can I do my core mission in a way that's safe for myself, my staff, my family, my community, my medical center? Right, like what, what kind of direction can I take this um, institution in that sort of fills its core mission but abides by common sense, known information, you know, practicalities. And I'm thinking about the word that you, that you use like practicality. For me, it's reasonable, right? We're doing what we can that's reasonable where it wouldn't be reasonable to wear a full, de a, 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 a full chemical protection suit you know, to, to go around the library, that would just year, yeah. you know, and, but there, we have to find a way to be reasonable about what we do. And it's probably more in the diligence, not the magic of what we're going to do, but the diligence to do it persistently. All right. So here's my question. I've noticed in your month here that you have a pretty impressive sock collection. <laughs> Is this something you think about? You know, it's, it, it is funny to me that you, you brought that up because, um, as I told you before, my personality has been screened and rescreened many times from Myers-Briggs to the other ways they do it now. And I am a high red executor. And what my wife and my kids have tried to get me to do is that it's a way to give a projection of being a little bit more whimsical or a little bit more approachable, even though I... I feel like I want to be and I'd like to be and I and I believe I am, but I think there's just 
this admission uh, that sometimes it's not. So my socks are a way to, I think, give people the understanding that I'm I'm pretty I'm a pretty informal person, even though I'm a shirt and tie guy. It's just, yeah, it maybe gives me a little bit of grounding to be a little bit more whimsical at times. Yeah, and I feel like the fact that you're you're I've noticed that your ties and your socks seem to coordinate. <laughs> so big props on that. Thank you. I think my wife has set me up with some type of Garanimals type situation <laughs> where if I if I just generally stick to these principles, I'll be okay. <laughs> well, I would also I, I haven't seen your socks yet. Um, because on the Zoom town council meetings, you know, you're you're chest up. But um you know, does it also, is it also helpful for you to remember to be whimsical? Not only what you're projecting, but like, is it a good reminder for you? I, I love that. It really is because, uh, you know, I think part of my life journey and part of this decision to be part of Block Island is I'm in that point where I was going down a very heavy administrative path. And there are pros and cons to that, but going down that path made me realize kind of a grieving that I like patient care. I enjoy talking to patients. I enjoy advocating for patients. And the best way for me to be effective is advocating one-on-one for patients and advocating for Block Island. So for me, it's kind of part of my life to be a little bit less burdened by those issues that happen in administration where it becomes complicated all on its own. And to say gratitude, right? Have gratitude. I, I've found myself saying that when I look out, you know, at the back uh, back of the house and down towards Crescent Beach to say, you're in a pretty great place. You're in a pretty great place. You're around great people. And we all have a, a clarity of mission, which is great. And like in any business, there are trying days. Uh, and then there's a lot of days that you say, these are pretty wonderful days. So it's part of an overall emotional and attitude for me to say maybe take yourself a little less seriously be serious when you need to but realize that everybody's dealing with something and that if we can be more personable and just in the moment is just a good life lesson for me personally trying to be in the moment I was always that person where it was I'll be happy when you know, when college comes, when medical school's done, when residency's done, when I'm, an, when I'm an attending, then I'll be able to settle down. But then you realize as you get older that it's the way you're built and the way you're wired. And it allows you to be successful in certain areas, but it's a challenge in others. And one of them is being able to relax and not burn yourself out. And I think I've become more, I was never somebody that I felt burnout. I never really understood how people had burnout. If you like what you do, and you feel like you have purpose in what you're doing. But in that heavy administrative role and the frustrations that come with that, I did think I had a better appreciation for people to say, is this what it's all about? And I think what I realized is that what it's all about is sitting down and advocating for that 70-year-old lady that has emphysema, that needs the right meds at the right time and the right vaccines and the right help from specialists and making that individual difference is what it's about. Wake Up Well is produced by Dry Brush Studios. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to get involved in the conversation or offer comments or suggestions, please email us at wakeupwellblockisland at gmail.com. Thanks.